Good evening. Mayor Adams honors the city's transit heroes in the wake of the N-Train shooting. Can the war in Ukraine herald a nuclear exchange? Anti-abortion laws pop up across the nation. And whistleblower reality winner recounts the terror that came into her life when she turned over documents to a progressive publisher. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for April 15th, 2022. New York MTA workers who assisted people in the aftermath of the Brooklyn subway shooting attack were honored as heroes Friday. They got a special proclamation at New York City Hall. New York Mayor Eric Adams, still in COVID-19 quarantine, virtually presided over the ceremony. He said the transit workers remain calm and focused and save lives. When our city was attacked Tuesday morning, uh, you risked real danger to save the lives of everyday New Yorkers. I want to thank every single MTA employee for their entire commitment, dedication, and service. I want to also say in this time of crisis, you kept the trains, the buses, and the ferries moving. You got people safely to their destination, and you continue to deliver the service that we expected. It's a pleasure for me to introduce to you our first Deputy Mayor, Lorraine Grillo. Whereas there is no greater example of resilience that defines our diverse residents than the kindness, strength, and valor shown by these courageous in individuals. They embodied the very best of our great city that our great city has to offer and possess a bottomless well of compassion for those they serve. I, Eric Adams, mayor of the city of New York, do hereby proclaim Friday, April 15th, 2022 in the city of New York as, the, and each and every one of the heroes will be named on their proclamation that it will be their day. Thank you. Earl Phillips, Secretary-Treasurer of New York's Public Transit Union, thanked the mayor for giving transit workers recognition they richly deserved. Ten people were shot, and a total of 29 people were hurt during the attack. No one died. The alleged shooter, Frank James, is facing federal charges after being denied bail at a brief initial court appearance yesterday. James didn't enter a plea at the court hearing. He's charged with conducting a violent attack on a mass transportation vehicle. In the continuing war in Ukraine, Kyiv says its forces are trying to break Russian forces' siege of Mariupol, with fighting raging around the city's steelworks and port, as the capital was rocked by some of the most powerful explosions in two weeks. Russia said it had struck overnight what it said was a factory in Kyiv that made and repaired anti-ship missiles in apparent retaliation for the sinking of the Moskva, the flagship of Moscow's Black Sea fleet. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the loss of the cruiser won't change the outcome of the war, but is a major blow to Moscow. We've been in touch with the Ukrainians overnight who have said that they struck the ship with anti-ship missiles. We don't have the capacity at this point to independently verify that, but certainly the way that this unfolded, it's a big blow to Russia. They, this is their flagship, the Moscow, and they have now been forced to admit that it has been badly damaged and they've had to kind of choose between two stories. One story is that 
it was just incompetence and the other was that they came under attack and neither is a particularly good outcome for them. Reportedly, the United States government believes the Moscow was hit by two Ukrainian missiles and that there were Russian casualties. Russia has previously said more than 500 sailors were on board the Moskva. Mariupol on the Sea of Azov has seen the worst fighting of the war, home to 400,000 people before Russia's invasion. The city has been reduced to rubble in seven weeks of siege and bombardment. Thousands of civilians have died and tens of thousands are still trapped in the city. Hunger is striking at the remaining civilians in the battered coastal city. Although Ukraine is one of the world's largest producers of food, the executive director of the World Food Program is David Beasley. It's the food arm of the United Nations. He says 30 million tons of grain can't be shipped because of the war, causing a rippling food crisis in mostly poor nations around the world. He adds Mariupol itself is suffering starvation. And I don't know of anything that's happening good inside Maripol. We can't reach the people. We have demanded that we be given the access. We have not been given the access. We will continue to do everything we can uh, to reach those people, and we'll keep fighting for them. That's all, all we can do, and we will not give up on the people in Maripol and other people that we cannot reach. But it's a devastating situation. The people are being starved to death. What's happening now is devastating the people in Ukraine, and obviously we believe that we can help the people in Ukraine if we are given the access we need, but I don't see any of that uh, easing up. I, I just don't see it happening right now. In fact, it's getting worse and worse, concentrated in certain areas, and the front lines are going to be moving. And how do we preposition to help food and anticipation? There's a lot of complexities here. And of course, we'd like to be very flexible and fluid, given the resources and all of our expertise to be able to reach everybody wherever that, that might be. But the next, it's not just to be the next few days, but the next few weeks and a few months could even get more complicated than it is now. David Beasley is executive director of the UN's World Food Program. Meanwhile, the war has prompted some nations near Russia to inquire about joining the NATO alliance. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, said that should Sweden and Finland join NATO, then Russia would have to strengthen its land, naval, and air forces in the Baltic Sea. That implies the possible use of nuclear weapons. Russia and the United States are by far the world's largest nuclear-armed nations, with thousands of city-busting warheads between them, mounted on missiles, submarines, and bombers. The director of the anti-nuclear Los Alamos study group is Greg Mello. He says the expansion of NATO raises the overall risk of nuclear war to a much higher level than it is today, which is already higher than it's been since the early 1980s. But he says Russia has been restrained compared to the United States and NATO, who he says have been provoking Moscow. They don't want to go into Ukraine the way that we went into Iraq. They want to win those people over on the east side of Ukraine. The Russian speakers, they don't consider them really an enemy, and they've been very careful, and they have paid in blood for that. I'm afraid that what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks is more destructiveness because the terrain is more open and there's new people in charge there in Russia of the war. It's a pity that here in the U.S. we want to arm Ukraine and prolong this war for the purpose of bleeding Russia at the expense of the Ukrainian people. We're concerned about that in our organization. We're concerned about other countries joining NATO, which has been a really big provocation to Russia, as well as becoming in itself really an aggressive force in the world, pretty aggressive since 1995 or so. We would rather NATO not exist. We're peaceniks, and we think that there ought to be 
every effort made to bring this conflict to a halt rather than to extend and deepen it as the current leadership here in the U.S. seems to want to do. It's more than just a threat of an invasion. We're not talking about another Vietnam. The powers involved are more heavily armed than any powers in human history. Yes, that's correct. Absolutely correct. And I'm not sure that that we understand that now. I'm really glad that you said that because it's the reality of nuclear weapons has been lost to people. I have friends who teach courses in this, and the people in the classes don't understand. Ted Postel at MIT, retired, someone asked him, what would this be like? And he said, imagine the sun brought down to the surface of the earth. Imagine a wall of fire at 10,000 degrees in your neighborhood. Well, I can't imagine that. What it means is the end. Can the human mind get its head around something like that? Is that the problem? It's a psychological problem? Probably. That's a big part of it. We've lived in one of the wealthiest, maybe the wealthiest, most privileged times and places in history. Yeah, most of us have really not known severe hardship. Maybe we've had during our student days, maybe in my case, flirting with homelessness in graduate school. Of course, we see around us the difficulty in our own society, which most of us want to help and do what we can, but it's a very large problem. In a real war situation, the level of suffering is beyond most of our imaginations. What's the real threat here? Our allies, uh, Germany, France, Great Britain, all uh, the Poland, all great civilized countries, uh, the epic of humanity. How could this happen? Yeah, how could it happen? Someone remarked the other day that this crop of leaders that we have here in the West is some of the worst they've really ever seen in their lifetime. And I guess I have to agree. Olaf Schultz in Germany, President Biden, who's honestly too old. I'm here in Washington. We have very dysfunctional government. This week, it's like a ghost town in halls of Congress, where it was yesterday. We're not dealing with the problems we have in this country, and we're not dealing realistically with Russia. It feels like we're victims of our own propaganda about our overwhelming strength. I don't see that. I don't see the overwhelming strength I see here in Washington and in our big cities. I see tremendous social divisions, the potential for great unrest and our military. You know, we work on nuclear weapons issues, and it's enormous bloat, inefficiency, failure of projects, can't shoot straight. We're going to hopefully have an awakening moment where with some mild hardship, we will find ourselves with our feet on the ground again and get our head out of the dark place where we put it. Greg Mello is director of the anti-nuclear Los Alamos study group. Food supplies are at risk in the United States, too, but for different reasons in the countries depending on Ukraine's wheat crop. Today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott scaled back inspections he ordered at border crossings with Mexico. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of fruits and vegetables hauled through the southern border were at risk after the new truck inspection program and ensuing protests caused miles-long traffic jams. Abbott last week ordered state troopers to inspect all commercial trucks after they cleared federal checkpoints in response to President Joe Biden's decision to end the Title 42 immigration order. The Texas Department of Public Safety will continue to thoroughly inspect vehicles entering into the United States from every Mexican state except Nuevo Leon. Nuevo Leon has increased its security on its side of the border. The Texas Department of Public Safety can return to its previous practice of random searches of vehicles crossing the bridge from Nuevo Leon.
And I understand the concerns that businesses have trying to move products across the border. But I also know well the frustration of my fellow Texans and my fellow Americans caused by the Biden administration not securing our border. Abbott says he worked out agreements with other Mexican border cities, but truckers say the agreements are coming too late to prevent the spoilage of fresh food that was headed to stores in Texas, the Midwest, and Northeast. Truckers say stores and restaurants will struggle to get their hands on Mexican-grown avocados, limes, tomatoes, mangoes, and cucumbers that primarily travel through Texas, and some stores won't be able to replenish their stocks until next weekend. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill banning most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It's modeled after a Mississippi abortion law that the Supreme Court is currently weighing and which would essentially undo Roe v. Wade. He said in a statement, the bill joins Texas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and other states, hoping the conservative-dominated U.S. Supreme Court overturns the Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. We are here today to protect life. We are here today to defend those who can't defend themselves. And in just a minute, I will be signing House Bill 5, uh, which protects uh, the rights uh, of unborn children starting at 15 weeks. This is a, uh, a time where these babies have beating hearts. They can move, they can taste, uh, they can see, they can feel pain, they can suck their thumbs, uh, and they have uh, brain waves. And so this will represent uh, the most significant protections for life that have been enacted in this state in a generation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis Narrow pro-choice America called Florida's abortion ban a shameless step toward what could be a terrifying new future for reproductive freedom in the country. Activist Sarah Taylor is a pro-choice advocate. She says states like Kentucky and Florida are thrusting women back into a role as incubator. Kentucky, goddamn! Kentucky today became the first state to ban all abortions. The only two abortion clinics in that state stopped doing them today. Right now, women who need abortions in that state are having their appointments canceled. Right now, they are being told that their lives, their dreams, their hopes for the future, their plans, their physical safety doesn't count for shit. Because a bunch of women haters, a bunch of theocratic Christian fascists have taken the reins of the state and told them that they are going to be forced to have a child. Whether they want one or not, they're going to have their lives and their futures foreclosed. And if we don't act, if we don't stand up across this country and raise hell, this could be the fate of women across the country. The U.S. Supreme Court is getting ready. They are on track to overturn Roe v. Wade, to gut women's right to abortion nationwide in just a few weeks. People are sleeping through this. They're sitting back. They don't even know it's happening. If you don't go out and raise hell and raise the green bandana and get in the streets and let them know, then you are allowing this atrocity the enslavement of half of humanity to go down. This is not a drill. Abortion is already effectively banned across Texas. A law is on the books to criminalize it in Oklahoma, scheduled to go into effect in August. Today, Ron DeSantis, that Trump wannabe fascist, disgusting specimen of our species, 
signed a 15-week ban in Florida on abortion. This is going to be the future unless we stand up and stop it. And only the people can stop this. Only the masses of people rising up, raising hell, waving the green bandana, the symbol of abortion rights and struggle for abortion rights that came out of Latin America and that rise up for abortion rights.org is taken up here. You need to be part of this. Which side are you on? Since Sarah Taylor is host of You Only Want the World, heard Tuesdays at 7 p.m. here on WBAI in New York. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. One of the most important aids to progressive journalism are the whistleblowers who are often the sources of information about government activities and wrongdoing that add some of the only transparency citizens get into the workings of their government. One of those whistleblowers is 30-year-old reality winner, a former intelligence specialist. In 2018, she was given the longest sentence ever imposed for unauthorized release of government information to the media for leaking an intelligence report. While employed by the military contractor Pluribus International Corporation, winner was arrested on suspicion of leaking an intelligence report about Russian interference in the 2016 United States elections from the National Security Agency to the news website The Intercept. I had just gotten home from grocery shopping and I pulled into my driveway and I guess I was looking at my phone. I wasn't turning whatever I had playing on my phone off because by the time I had stepped out of the car, Agents Garrick and Taylor had driven up and they introduced themselves and explained that they were there to execute a search warrant. Did they seem like they knew what they were looking for? No, actually, Agents Garrick and Taylor stayed with me the entire time. Once I had basically, you know, we had gone over the paperwork. That was when I believe three, at least three other vehicles came up and there were 11 agents total in and out of the house. So they executed the warrant over a period of three hours or so. I mean, I think they were still there when I was eventually taken in a different vehicle. But then after about an hour, I was very, I was scared for my life. They were almost too casual at times. And I definitely did not feel free to leave. I asked at three different times, can you give me more information on what's going on? Am I under arrest? They always said, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. You actually don't know if you're legally being detained or not. But I felt like my life was in their hands. I just remember thinking about like my cat because like she's very, very afraid, especially of men and um, all 11 agents were male and they kept leaving the doors open. And I was trying to stay calm and oblige everything, like everything they requested and be peaceful. But I just kept replaying like my cat getting out. And then if she got out, then I would run after her and then they would think I'm running and the cat gets out. I run after her. I get shot in the back. Every time the door was left open, that scene played over in my head. Did they let you bail out or they basically you were in jail from that point till you got out last year? I remained incarcerated for four years to the day. I wasn't. That was the biggest controversy in my case, that I wasn't granted bail. There was only like we actually brought up every single time the Espionage Act has been used in court. 90% of the time, everybody gets bail. It's only if you're like literally an asset or you've tried to flee, like they detained you at the airport, (laughs) you know, nobody's ever been like thought to be an actual flight as a flight risk, except apparently I was. Did they offer you a plea bargain at any point? 
Yeah, I pled guilty. That's historical fact. It doesn't seem like what you did in the scheme of things was a threat to America, and yet you were treated as such. What did you think about that? It was highly political. I didn't know at the time that that would be me. They showed up at my house, and I gave them everything they wanted. I told them what I did within 20 minutes. Why? Like, I... I didn't have an attorney. I never studied the Espionage Act before that because I thought somebody's going to see this. They're going to talk to me after 20 minutes and they're going to say, okay, this person isn't a criminal. This person isn't a threat. They obviously didn't mean harm. Like, it's very simple. So for me, I've never framed the act as being a crime. I mean, I do know now, and then also per my plea, yes, I did break the law. And I didn't understand that when it comes to the Espionage Act of 1917, you don't actually have to commit espionage to be charged under it. All you have to do is willfully retain and disclose the information, and it doesn't specify to whom. So, yes, I violated that. I committed a felony. And so I have pled guilty for that, and I take responsibility for that. But any other information as far as intent or who or motivation or was there a monetary reward or actual damage caused, none of that is relevant as far as Section 793E of the Espionage Act is concerned. If you retain and disclose information, national defense information, it doesn't even define what that is, by the way. That one line, that law 793E, is one of the most powerful laws in the United States because you can almost charge anybody with it. It's so highly politicized, and once you say the word espionage, Someone is tainted for the rest of their life. Different administrations can use it however they want. Unfortunately, I learned that the hard way. The Intercept, where the article that was printed that had the revelations in it, has been taking a lot of criticism for how they handled this whole thing. Do you feel that's true or not? I'm not the only source that the Intercept has burned. Terry Aubrey and Daniel Hale also did time behind the fact that the Intercept doesn't protect sources and then turns them into martyrs and then benefits off of the severe consequences that they face. They just don't need to take care of sources anymore because when people are arrested for it, they have something to write about. That could be seen as pretty cynical, but you feel it strongly. Outlets and journalists with the certain type of narrative that The Intercept can offer, they can see it as sort of one of the last voices trying to hold our government and our administrations accountable. Maybe I'm a little cynical because I can see through that and know that they made just as much money covering me in prison and trying to act like they were the last line of defense for me when if they had just protected me as a source in the first place. Martyrdom porn. They have somebody else to cover who's wasting away in prison. It gives them something else to do. Winner was convicted of removing classified material from a government facility and mailing it to a news outlet and sentenced to five years and three months in prison as part of a plea deal. And today is Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball. Every April 15th, the league honors and celebrates the career of the man who broke the color barrier back in 1947. Today is the 75th anniversary of his big league debut. The city of New York, together with the league, honored Robinson in a special, unique way with the street, a special street, 42nd and Broadway. New York City Metropolitan Area Deputy Mayor for Economic and Workforce Development, Maria Torres Springer, made the announcement. 
excited to announce that in partnership with Major League Baseball, the City of New York is very honored to temporarily rename 42nd and Broadway Jackie Robinson Way. Former baseball outfielder Ken Griffey Jr. and Robinson's granddaughter Sonia Pankey spoke of the street naming as well. If it wasn't for him, maybe my dad would have never played. Um, maybe I would have never played. But he went through things that I can't imagine what he's gone through. And I don't have to go through that because that man did it for us. We will continue to move forward um, through the Jackie Robinson Foundation, through our family and our own legacy to ensure that the children and the next generation understand the commitment, the sacrifice he made to social change. Former baseball outfielder Ken Griffey Jr. and Robinson's granddaughter Sonia Pankey. And that's some of the news for April 15, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.